Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. In any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now, Anna and Jay, raise your wands, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Film Strip's Harry Potter Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And we're here to talk about the fourth entry in our series, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the 2005 film, of course, uh, written or adapted by the work of J.K. Rowling by Steve Close, the guy who's written all of them, directed by Mike Newell this time around, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, Emma Watson, Ray Fiennes, Brendan Gleeson, and Robert Pattinson, <laughs> the Twilight guy. Uh, <laughs> before he was Twilight, he was in this. Uh, on a budget of $150 million, Anna, this 157-minute adaptation of an even longer book made $895 million worldwide, 290 of that domestically. It was a jump up from the last one domestically. And it is a very thick and dense film, I think we can say. Yes, we can. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. We talked about the last time that the last one seemed to move fast and go fast and that the plot was kind of simple. Well, it's not simple anymore, children. This book and, and everything I've heard about this book is that it's complicated and this film is kind of complicated too. Now, Anna, you've read the book, so is that true? Yeah, the books. The book does it way better. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Usually a book is better than the movie. Very few movies I've gone to, you know, the book is better than the movie's better than the book. But yeah, the the plot moves a lot quicker in the book than it does to this movie. But in that defense, this book was really hard to kind of adapt to a movie anyway. So there's a lot of detail in it. There's a lot of um, trudging through. There's a lot of subplots that aren't even in the, the movie. So, I, I mean, it, it, in in the defense of this movie, to play devil's advocate, that this was a very difficult book book to convert to a movie. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I've read a lot about it. The book is twice the length of the previous book, Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk about all the stuff they had to remove from it. Oddly enough, though, that doesn't seem to have hurt it. You know, we talked about last time that the hardcore Harry Potter fans weren't thrilled with the way that uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban got cut up, essentially, mm-hmm. for a movie. But they don't seem to mind this one. It it seems to, because a lot of stuff, a lot of detail is left in this. Before we get any more into it, though, I think we need a plot summary. So if you'll do the honors, please. 
Right before Harry and his friends enter Hogwarts for their fourth year, they attend a Quidditch World Cup where a Death Eater, a follower of Lord Voldemort, releases the Dark Mark, a symbol of the Dark Lord, which looks kind of like a black cloud with a skull and a snake through it. Though the Wizarding World is disturbed, the kids return to Hogwarts where they get a big surprise. A new defense against our dark arts teacher? Well, of course. That's no surprise. They get one every year. <laughs> this year, it's Mad-Eye Moody. And the, but the real surprise is the Triwizard Tournament is coming to Hogwarts. And they learn that the Triwizard, the, the kids at Hogwarts will be joined by students from other wizarding schools across Europe. There's Bobatons from France and Drumstang from Denmark. Each school will have one delegate rep- delegate represented in the Triwizard Tournament. The students who qualify have to be over 16 years old, and they must drop their name into a Goblet of Fire. The Goblet of Fire spits out three delegates. It spit out Fleur Delacour from Beaubatons, Victor Krum from Durmstang, and Cedric Diggory from Hogwarts. Then the Goblet spit out another name. It was Harry Potter. Everyone at Hogwarts and the Ministry of Magic are dumbfounded, but they let Harry compete anyway, despite the fact that he is only a fourth-year student. Evil is afoot because Harry did not put his name in the goblet, even though all the students think he did, and once again, he is ridiculed. The delegates and Harry must compete in three challenges. The first one involved dragons, the second one involved mermaids, and the last one is a magical maze filled with all kinds of challenges. The first delegate to find the trophy in the maze wins, but evil was truly afoot. Lord Voldemort had sent a faithful servant to Hogwarts to change the trophy to a port key. When Cedric and Harry decide the only fair thing to do is tie, they touch the trophy at the same time and both are transported to a graveyard where Lord Voldemort waits for Harry. Voldemort and Harry battle, and in the process, Cedric is killed. Once Harry figures out how to escape, he returns to Hogwarts with Cedric's body and news of the Dark Lord's return. He learns that Mad-Eye Moody was an imposter sent by Voldemort to make sure Harry touched the port key, and the real Mad-Eye was locked in a trunk. The Ministry refused to believe Harry's claim that the Dark Lord had returned. Anna, I think we can say right off the bat, that this is a really different film than the last one that we got. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, th- they've changed the game in the last one, and then in this one they've changed it again. And I would have to say, not for the better. There's, uh, I mean, that sounds really cool, everything you just read, but the yeah. fact that it executes itself over almost two and a half hours, and it, I'm going to tell you, it's every single second of those two and a half hours it makes this film very, very difficult for me to get through. I have had a hard time watching this movie the first time I saw it and then watching it again for this review. In spite of the fact that there's a lot of action and there's the, all the, you know, the tournament stuff is cool, but everything else just seems to go on and on and on. Yeah, it's one of those movies where, and it might have to do also with the Triwizard Tournament. Um, I, I didn't put in a plot summary because I didn't want it to be too dense, but there's the reason it's like that is there is a lot of time between each of the challenges because they give the delegates time to kind of like study and read up and come up with 
in, in fact, in the, the second challenge, the Murbank challenge, immediately after the first one, they're given this egg. And, you know, the, the like, Harry thinks to open it, and it's kind of like splash, where it's just like, ee! you know, it's just a scream. And then they gotta, they have to figure out that it goes in the water, and you open it, and then it's a riddle, and you got to figure out that you're going into the lake and then they got to figure out how they're going to breathe underwater. So, I mean, I think that's a lot that slows down the plot. It doesn't make that much difference in the book, but that really slows down the plot in the movie. And I think it's because they don't move from one to another. They've got between the first, um, challenge in the second challenge they're figuring all this stuff out and the same thing for like the maze they're figuring stuff out so i think that bogs down the plot quite a bit and it's it's unfortunate because this is where we get to see lord Voldemort in real form for the first mm-hmm. time yeah ray fines comes on who is a fantastic actor has been in so many cool movies and done so much good work and he, I mean, he's an Academy Award winner for The English Patient. I mean, he's been in some pretty cool flicks. I mean, I, I've seen him in Schindler's List. I loved him in, he's the, really the only good thing in the Red Dragon uh, Hannibal Lecter film that they kind of remade. I, but I've seen him in this, and I know him in this movie, too. And he's such a cool actor, and it's neat that we finally get, you know, the one who shall not be named, and you, you know who, and all that, finally gets to come on screen and do something but gosh, it just takes so long to get there. I, I'm afraid by the time I finally get to the end of this thing and this end fight with him and Harry and, and uh, Cedric, I, I thought that was a cool ending. But gosh, it just took so long to get there. I was so tired by the end of this movie. I mean, this movie is so thick that it just makes your head hurt in, in a lot of ways. Oh, and there's so much. And I mean, I paraphrased it, but there's so much going on like they don't even start at the Dursleys like they normally do with this one starts at the Quidditch World Cup and then they've got the dark mark and then they go to hard can, can I say this though went, can I say this though? I was huh? glad we didn't start at the Dursleys again I was kind of tired of that after the last one I feel like after we blew up Aunt Petunia it was time to move on I, I was tired of those people and I know it won't be the last time we ever see them but I just felt like if they had done that again it would be like, but that's oh. how every book starts. Oh, I know. But in here, I'm going to say something else too. You had talked about, you know, the books are sometimes better than the movies, all that kind of stuff. I I have always approached films like this that are adapted from you know, other works, literary works in particular. It's a different medium. I mean, you, you know, all I'm trying to see is are they bringing forth the the root and the the heart and the concept of the book, and then if they translate it and they have to shorten things and do different stuff, I'm okay with that. As long as we we're getting somewhere and there's entertainment involved, it's a different medium. Like you know, take a book like I'll give you a good example. Okay, the the book The Firm is really cool and it's a different oh, yeah. kind of thriller. But I will tell you now that would not work as a movie. It would not work as a two hour movie. It would work as like a mini series or a TV show because there's I mean there's half the last half of the book is them on the run. You know, and that's yes. really 20 minutes to the movie. That movie works because they just took the spirit of what it was all about and translated it. I'm okay if they can do that from book to film, even on like a series like this that's so tied to a fandom and stuff like that. I'm okay if they make changes. But I feel like in some ways the producers here 
and this new director are reacting to the fact that people last time said, well, they took too much out of the book, they streamlined it too much, uh, and so they decided to make this really thick, dense film to go along with this really thick, dense book. Yes, and I, I kind of disagree with you because I read The Firm, and that was like the first like adult book I, I ever read that wasn't like geared for a kid or something I had to read because my teachers made me. And I saw the movie and I was so disappointed. I mean, the book is so good. It shouldn't have even been made into a movie. And I, I, the book is great. There's no doubt. But that book would not have worked as a two hour. No, it shouldn't have been a movie at all. This, uh, the only thing that I'll say about the Dursleys is that um, in the book, they had a really cool thing where Mr. Weasley comes to get Harry for the Quidditch World Cup, and and Harry's all freaking about, out about how he's going to enter because the Dursleys are thinking like a normal person, he's going to enter through the door, and I think he enters through the chimney, you know, the flu powder or something. Yeah. And I, they had a really cool, and you know how he's so goofy, and the actor who plays him plays him in this kind of goofy thing because he's supposed to be in Muggle like muggle artifacts or something. He's in some department that specifically studies muggles and he's just fascinated about like our electronics and stuff like that. So I just, I, I found that kind of, I found that and I found the Quidditch world cup kind of lacking too. And it's just, it goes from, I think it's just has too much. It's like they tried to condense the each little thing in the book into one little scene and it doesn't really yeah. work. Yeah, because they still are tied to the fact that they got to try to keep this under three hours. It runs 157 minutes. Now you chop the credits off of it. It's it's two and a half hours and it does feel like everything gets the short shrift. Like we have to mm -hmm. speed run, but we're doing every single scene. So it's different scenery. It's a different take all the way. And we need to talk with this director, Mike Newell. You know, he's a pretty successful guy. His, his filmography's kind of broad. I mean, he's done he's done everything from like the Charlton Heston mummy flick called The Awakening back in the 80s. I don't know if you've ever seen that, it's it's kind of dreadful. Um <laughs> he did Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um he I did, love Four Weddings and a Funeral. Well, see, he's done he's done romantic comedy. Then he did Donnie Brasco, which is this sort of Johnny Depp Al Pacino mob drama. He did Pushing Ten, which is Angel Angelina Jolie, Billy Bob Thornton, and John Cusack in this kind of dark comedy drama. Mm -hmm. You know, he's done Mona Lisa Smile, which is, you know, Julia Roberts as a, you know, feminist uh, professor or whatever. Oh, yeah, that was, and, I saw that. That was kind of stupid. He did that. And then this, and, you know, since he's done Prince of Persia, I mean, the guy's got around. He's done some stuff, but he's got this broad filmography. And I feel like where Alfonso Cuaron, we said last time, could do sentimentality, but in a very... Uh, you know, action-oriented way. There was a movement, and there was something... You know, there's always something going on there. And there seemed to be this... Like you were constantly in motion, you know, with, with Alfonso Cuaron and an Alfonso Cuaron movie. I don't know what Mike Newell's touch is or his aesthetic, his style. It just seems to be vignettes. Like when I think Four Weddings and a Funeral, I think vignettes. You know what I mean? When I think Donnie Brasco, it's really just a lot of scenes kind of chunked together, this this FBI life, you know? Mona Lisa Smile is really just a bunch of scenes. And Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire seems like a play, 
that has multiple sets and like three stages going, you know? So mm-hmm. you just go between these scenes and it's all this exposition and it's a lot of exposition and it's almost just, it's mind numbing what you're trying to absorb and follow here. And I, I want to say, I don't know that I'm a fan of the way he directed it. What did you think of him? Well, I, first of all, I remember from way back when this came out in my Entertainment Weekly, one of the reasons they chose him is because he's he's the first British director they've had they had up until this point, and he um they were try they what they were going for was trying to get a feel of a British boarding school, and I do not that's what I remember from the article. And granted, I read this a long time ago, but I thought his I thought it was okay. I don't think the kids were like they were when Chris when they were really little and Chris Columbus directed it. I think they had some of what they learned from Alfonso Curon, but I think more than the acting or the directing, it was the plot. The plot was just so boring. And so slow. So I, I wouldn't necessarily blame the director, but the plot, maybe they didn't have a whole lot to work with. I, my biggest complaint is the plot. Well, my thinking is at some point there's a meeting that he's got to be involved in and they decide to do this this film this way where we're not going to cut out any of the stuff. We're going to let it go, right? And and they they deal with everything, but they deal with it. They try to deal with it as fast as possible. So it winds up being thirty seven different you know issues instead of being maybe fifteen or sixteen that you could have fleshed out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, I, I feel like it's almost too much happening in this movie for us to really buy into any of it and have long term effects with it. I I would have loved to have had. Oh, to have felt like the three parts of the Trial Wizard tournament had distance between them. But I never felt like these people stopped. It seemed like they just constantly ran from one thing to the next. And maybe that's supposed to be the metaphor of how your life gets when you're sort of all over the place. But I think it's pretty thin if that's what they're trying to tell. Well, that's the point. I don't know what they're trying to tell. I don't know what they're trying to do. I mean, I mean that's the whole point. It's basically, oh. it's kind of a cross between... It's kind of like 80% um, Chris Columbus and 80 to 85% Chris Columbus and 20 to 15% Alfonso Cuaron. So, I mean, but what kills me about this movie is that the last 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes are excellent. The action picks up. The acting is good. Um, the action picks up. They, it is excellent. And I mean, it's probably the best part of this whole movie, but it takes so long to get there. And it's not, it just takes forever to get there. I would almost advise people to fast forward to the last 40 minutes and start watching there. I would say that if I felt like when you got there, you would know what was going on. But I don't think you will. I think you have to sit through all of this trudgery to get to the coolest part of the movie. And, and look, the point here is very simple. We're going to make Voldemort a real corporeal thing. For the first time in this series, he's going to be a real force and he's going to inflict direct damage to a character that we care about. Voldemort wasn't in the last one, right? 
No, he wasn't in the book or the movie. It wasn't like they cut him out or anything. It's the only book, the last one, The Prisoner of Azkaban, is the only book that Voldemort is not in as a character. Because it's the only story he's not, it's not directly tying back to him. That one was really about Harry sort of coming to terms with who he was and where he was going. Yes. And and then we we're past that now. So now it is all about Baltimore and we get back to him. And I do, I think that's the whole purpose of this thing. I just feel like getting there is I'm I'm with you. It just takes so long to get there, but let's talk about the new characters. And specifically, let's talk about Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. Mm-hmm. I, I've already said, I love him in this. I thought he was a great choice. And I, I really dig the time he's on screen, particularly at the end. Oh, yeah. He owns the screen. He owns the stage, whatever you want to call it. He does this role so perfectly from the voice to his mannerisms and that weird, freaky makeup. He just, I mean, he just owns it. He, that, I mean, he was a very good choice. I was excited when he was picked for the role. And I, I mean, I wasn't disappointed. No, I mean, he's so much fun to watch. And again, and he's going to play that part to the end, you know, which is kind of neat that they're able to get an actor like him to sign on for this long series. And I mean, granted, he's going to become a bigger part of it as it grows, but it's neat to see them tie it to someone and you feel like, ah, it's going to be cool to watch him as he progresses in this role. But it was good to finally give him a a place, right? I mean, there's something there. So we got, it was good to see him incarnated or it was good to see him as a physical moving, standing object instead of like a memory, like in the chamber of secrets or as kind of a half-life in the, um, sorcerer's stone. So it was good to see an embodiment. That's what I was looking for. An embodiment of him, finally and he kind of moves like a he's i don't know what you know he doesn't have a nose really it's just sort of this blank kind of snaky face you know he almost mm-hmm. is is very serpent like in the way he talks and breathes but he's also got this skeleton bit going it's really creepy it is and it's and it makes sense because he he has ties to the serpent, you know. Yeah. Well, what what's Leather the? I mean, how you know? We talked about how Dumbledore and Richard Harris was you know exactly what Dumbledore was described as in the book. Is this what Voldemort is described as in the book? You know, um, not to not to me. I mean, he is described, but it is not that rich description like the one on Dumbledore. Hmm. There's no rich description that I can recall from reading it. And maybe it's because, you know, Dumbledore's in the books a whole lot more than Voldemort is and stuff because he's kind of back in in the books to come. He's kind of back there in the back of everybody's mind, kind of plotting his revenge. He's not in the middle of everything because we're not following him we're following Harry and Dumbledore kind of. So I, I mean, I was happy, I was happy with it and, but I don't look at it and scream out like, um, scream out like, Oh yes, that's exactly like it is in the book. That's interesting that it's not as descriptive as, as Dumbledore is in the books and stuff, but I, I we both are in agreement. It's a good portrayal and we, we oh, it's like him. Excellent. Lot, so. It's an excellent portrayal, especially when you said the snake like and the, 
the parallels to the Slytherin and the parcel tongue and everything. Very, very good. Yeah. That, that, that's a cool bit in the, in the flick that they do work in there. So what about Cedric Diggory? I mean, this is pre twilight Robert Pattinson in this role. And he's supposed to be like, if Harry Potter's the good jock, this guy's the ultimate one. Like he's supposed to be the senior while Harry's the, you know, upstart sophomore, right? That's, that's how we're supposed to see it. Maybe. I mean, he's, he's well, 16. No, we're actually supposed to see it as is kind of like from an English perspective, you know how um, English people are very class orientated because yeah. they want, you know, there, I'm sure there are English. I'm sure there are people that abs- in England who hate the royal family, and then I'm sure there are ones that just are like, "Oh my God, if I can marry Prince Harry or something, I would be so happy." But um, I, it's he is supposed to be a tradition, kind of the typical English popular kid. He that is what he is supposed to portray, and that's kind of how he's portrayed in the book. He is supposed to be the 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 typical English kid, and he's supposed to represent kind of like he's popular and he's well liked, and Harry is not. He's supposed to represent really the opposite of Harry. He comes from a good family. He comes from a good wizarding family, and he's apparently he's very successful, has a bright future ahead. And then you've got Harry, who's the orphan, who's half muggle who's kind of the half breed because his dad was a full-blooded wizard and his mom was a muggle born and harry's kind of i mean he's ridiculed by malfoy and stuff and you know outside of his house you know you know he's ridiculed and made fun of well, Harry's not understood by anyone except those closest to him. And Cedric is is the popular guy because everybody knows exactly who he is and where he comes from. Yes, and so he is the he's kind of the anti-Harry. Yeah. He's still a guy, yeah. but he's kind of the anti-Harry. Can I say I liked it though because it was finally like a foe at the school for Harry who wasn't really an antagonist. You know, Cedric's not picking on him. You know, he's I not know kind of a foe who wasn't threatening exactly yeah he's just you know he thinks he's better of course but that's sort of more like upbringing than it is classism i think i didn't read it as classism as much as just well he's just not as fortunate as i am you know whatever but i never i didn't read cedric as like a bad guy at all i liked him and when he dies it's, I mean, it's pretty impactful. Like, I didn't expect him to die. I didn't expect anybody to die. I felt like there was going to be this showdown at the end, and then something, as it always does, would get in the way. Because I think at that point, we all knew there were more books. There were going to be seven books. You know, that that was out at this point. So you figure, well, they're not going to kill anybody. So, I mean, not major. And then all of a sudden, they kill this guy. And it's, uh-huh. in some ways, it's obvious because you can pick it out. But in a lot of ways, it's not. And I liked it. And I thought Robert Pattinson was good in this. Look, I may be one of the few, you know, Know, film critics in the world that think he can actually act but i do i think the guy's good and he's good in this well he he didn't 
have to do much, just be the anti-Harry. So, I mean, he didn't <laughs> screw that up. Well, so, he, had, yeah. he had to stand there and look good, and he had to do the, the few bits he got. But yeah. he could have played that differently. You get a different actor in, that goes different, yeah. maybe. And I thought it worked. I really thought he brought something to the role. Oh, yeah, he did He did fine. He did fine. I, I don't have any problem with Robert Pattinson in this movie. Now, <laughs> You're going to hold your Twilight thoughts because, you know, we're, we're going to get to that one later on, folks. But look, look now, what do, you, what do you make of old Mad-Eye Moody? We get another defense against the Dark Arts teacher again. Well, I, as you know, I was a little disappointed. It has nothing to do. It probably has more to do with the director than the actor or even the script or the writing. This might be my biggest beef with the director is that I think. We had made such strides in the last movie with Lupin. You know, he yeah. he was, you know, the other ones had kind of been characters up until this point. And then you get Lupin and he's kind of the cool teacher. He's part of the plot and stuff. And you learn that he's got a connection to Harry and Harry's dad. I thought Mad Eye went more into the caricature realm. And it kind of it it got on my nerves when... I watched it. You know, it ticks me off is the fact that it's not really Mad Eye Moody most of the film. It's it's Uh Barry Crouch Jr., who's the you know ministry official's son or whatever. He he's 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 the culprit behind all this. The dark mark and yeah, he's the Mad Eye in the trunk. He's the he's the faithful servant. And he put he put Harry's you know name in the goblet. I mean, he's behind doing this through the polyjuice potion, which I did think was kind of a cool thing. It allow you to impersonate someone else. I mean, they always introduce some new magic toy for everybody. No, polyjuice potion was in the second movie. I like the the throwbacks that keep coming back too. I like that. I think they do a good job with that. And that is a sign that they are staying faithful to the books. The books, you know, are going to any any book series is going to always re-reference itself. Movies have a harder time of doing that from time to time, but that it's nice when they they get the throwback and, and like that or the callback like that. It really works. But I was kind of ticked though that we don't know anything about Mad Eye Moody at the end of this movie. We just know that the impersonation that has been for him. Well, what ticked me off mostly about that whole impersonation thing, and it's the same way in the book. They do the same thing in the movie that they did in the book. I never could figure out when was he not mad eye. Is like, did he come to Hogwarts with the pot with the polyjuice potion as a fake, or did he kind of? abduct them and i it's it's i don't know why it drives me nuts i've always read it that he's there like when they first introduce him and then from then on you don't see the real one until the end that's the only way that makes sense because otherwise why would he keep the guy nearby you know it he would have stashed him away in another place so obviously that well no um, he's got to keep them nearby because because you got it's kind of like DNA, you got to have their hair to keep putting in the polyjuice potion because it only lasts for like a certain amount of time. So he had. Well, then that explains it. Then he would have to have abducted him after school started and everybody got there. So, but my mm-hmm. thing is, they're so strict about who comes in and out of this place. Like they really are. They wouldn't have noticed this extra person there. You know, how did he infiltrate? How did Crouch infiltrate? all of Hogwarts to be able to pull this off. It is a plot problem for me. Like that whole, it seems almost like they tied that together. And I'm saying they, as in the book ties it together and it's almost too convenient. It's the too convenient MacGuffin. 
I, I just didn't go for it. Well, yeah, and it, it's they give more clues in the book. Like his his dad is there, senior is there yeah. doing the goblet of fire and stuff. And like between one of the challenges, he goes crazy. Harry catches him like going crazy. So apparently he saw his son. And then there's another clue that Harry has his modders map out and he sees Barty Couch on it. And he's like, huh, oh, what, what's he doing here? What blah, blah. You know, she makes references to it. Like you should catch on, but still you never figure out when he, he had to do it, I guess, before school started or okay. something. I don't know, but that's a plot point that drives me nuts. And I just wish I knew. It, it is a little, a little weak. It's kind of weird. Who is Rita Skeeter? Rita Skeeter is a reporter for the Daily Prophet, and she has been covering the Tri-Wizard Tournament, and she's kind of been writing little, um, she's like, like I said, she's the Harvey Levin of the wizarding world. <laughs> she's the Joe Shad of, of the wizard world, you're saying. The, the, let's write things that we don't have any proof for. Yeah, she's, well, she has kind of proof for them, but she just kind of, um, takes them and kind of goes with um sensationalizes them she sensationalizes them a little bit and it's played by miranda richardson and she kind of like knows that harry and hermione are friends and she sensationalizes it that they are having and if they're madly in love and stuff, which of course they, of, they both vehemently deny, which is only yes. foretelling that yes, those two are going to wind up together. You can see it a mile away, right? Like, <laughs> I don't even know if that's what happens, but I'm just saying that, that it's so hey, Harry and Hermione. No, no, that, that, that those two are not going to be together. It's going to be her yes. and Ron that wind up together. I mean, you can see yes. that, but it's, so, I mean, th- I've never caught any, for lack of a better way of saying it, romantic tension between Hermione and Harry, like at all, they're more like brother and sister. Yes. And I think it's, it's meant to be played that way because that's how they are in the book. It's in fact, she gets on Harry's nerves sometimes in the book and she's just like the know it all. And he's just like, I wish she'd shut up and not be so preachy. Right. Uh, he thinks that. So, um, yeah, it's obvious that they will, never be more than friends they will always be um kind of kind of um they will always be kind of like a brother and sister they're never going to be any more than friends so i mean they just would not work together. their characters would not work together at all so i mean so, so she sensationalizes everything and you know she she sensationalizes Harry and stuff like that. So she's, she's kind of making his life a, kind of a living hell too, with all this publicity and stuff. So, well, and that plays into the way he and uh, Ron and Hermione sort of act with each other. Well, we can mm-hmm. get to that when we talk about them, but that is kind of the catalyst for that. Now we talked about Cedric. What did you think of Fleur and Victor? Cause I, I really got, like zero off of them. They were sort of interesting. They were kind of neat to see as competitors, but I had no idea in my mind that they were ever going to be in the top of this. Clearly it was going to be the two Hogwarts boys that were above it all. Yes. And it goes back to, it's like they took every scene out of the book and just condensed it. For instance, floor where the school she comes from, they're French and they're all girls and they go into the book of this big, this, they go into a great detail how they're just kind of like, they have this 
since it's French, what's the word, je ne sais quoi or whatever about them that just make men fall at their feet. And there's a whole thing with Ron's kind of like in love with her. It's like they could just look at them and these men fall in love with them. It's almost like a love potion or something, but that's their thing at that school. And then the thing with um, like Victor, that they're the jocks. He's the guy from the Quidditch World Cup. He was the star on the other team for the Quidditch World Cup. So, I mean, they're kind of the like, like, Viking, you know, hike through the snow for five miles a day, kind of tough, kind of. Well, he's the bulky guy. I mean, he looks like a big linebacker compared to Cedric and Harry. I mean, he's a bulky dude. Then you have this little fairy girl, and then you have the two Hogwarts boys that just look like English boarding school kids, right? Yeah. It's like if you got, you know, the ballerina, the two soccer players, and then the American football player, and and throw them in a in a tournament together, well, you know. Yeah. Victor Crumb is clearly the MMA guy. I mean, he's gonna break people in half, and you know, go it just cause all kinds of hell. And I mean that, and that's kind of his way. He's sort of a bull in a china shop. It's and it goes back to they didn't give them a whole lot to do. They didn't develop those characters like they should have. And can I say that is a mistake? They, they spend yeah. so much time doing everything else. I that's why there's no tension in those scenes in the tournaments because you don't think either one of those others have a chance because you don't know anything about them. You have no reason to care how they do in this. And at the mm-hmm. end, when they're kind of out of it, you don't really care. And that's. That's unfortunate because those are those would have been interesting people to have developed on screen much more than spending time on Hagrid's girlfriend or Harry's crush, you know, who's Cedric's girlfriend or any of that other stuff. I don't think that was as important as maybe the other two competitors. If if you're really building this whole thing around this tournament and that that's the big part of the story, I just don't think that was a wise choice in the film. I think they could have spent more time on the the Fleur and Victor as characters and, and done away with some of the other stuff. The other stuff to me is where it got boring. I would have rather seen more about the four competitors and how each of them prepared all that stuff than endless, you know, other conversations about goofy other stuff. I mean, it just feels like there's all this superfluous material that they could have cut from this. They chose the wrong stuff to cut and condense. Well, I know, and the whole thing with, like, Hagrid and stuff is that in the book, he has this whole scene where he he and she talk about, you know, being giants and stuff and how big they are and stuff and how she's kind of in denial and, you know, he's kind of cool with it and stuff. So, I mean, it's like they put the goofy, sappy stuff in. What they did keep in was the goofy, sappy, feel-good Added, yeah, again, they dumped back in more buckets of Chris Columbus and did away with the cool stuff that Alfonso Cuaron did. Yes, exactly. And, and they, there weren't enough moments with people like Neville, who brings the gillyweed out. You know, it's the thing that allows Harry to breathe underwater. So, like, those kind of things are cool. Yeah, well, that's totally different in the book. In the book, it's Dobby. Ah, uh, see, that's interesting. See, I, I would have known that, but Hermione learns that the house el- house elves are the ones who like put the food out and stuff, and she becomes like their union leader. 
And I mean, it's a total at least, mess. At least, like, they, at least they cut that out. Cause I want to tell you, Dobby was the annoying part of the movie. He was in. Yeah. I was ready for him to get, I had no love for Dobby and I didn't need to see that again. If they cut him for budget, I would have been okay with that. Obviously they didn't, but I just, I was not ready to see Dobby again. Not, no, I was not prepared for that. That would not have been cool. So that well, was okay that they that changed now. that. Yeah, I was okay that they changed that. So that was and, a- and the other thing is that, like, in the book, it was so much cooler because it's, it's, I just didn't like the way they did it with Neville because in the book, it's like Harry's freaking out about this until the morning of the tournament. And then, you know, how the house elves have the magic. Dobby just appears and he's like, here, take it. It's gillyweed. It'll make you do this and stuff, and then disappears. Disappears. That's all he does. And um, and um, it was just like Harry's been stressing about this, you know, for months now. And you know, he's waited till the last minute. He doesn't know what he's gonna do. And then all of a sudden, this little house elf appears. It's like here. Take this, you'll be fine. Take it now before it's too late. Now I know why they cut it, because that would have been not economical to animate Dobby to have him just show up and do that. That That's why you give that to a human that you can have walk yeah. on the screen, do the two lines, and walk out. And it's somebody you recognize, so... I know, but I still didn't like it, because, I mean, of course... But it's kind of like... It's kind of rushed. It goes back to the whole thing. It's rushed. But it's like they're condensing like a hundred little plot, a little different scenes instead of making one cohesive movie and developing characters more. Yeah. We've so. talked about that. It just seems to flash from, you know, vignette. Yes, that, yeah. that's, that's another example is all well, I'm saying. Let, let's talk about Ron, Hermione and Harry, you know, okay. and sort of how they interact with each other and how they go. This is, they start to kind of fracture a little bit in this. There's some division in the group. We're starting to get angry at each other. We're doing the things that the teenagers do. Yeah. That was supposed to be in the last movie, but they cut it out. Yeah, again, and wisely so, because it wouldn't have worked. I, that would have been too much for that film. That's the thing, and I, I feel I, I feel like I just keep saying this over and over, but there's a reason you don't tra- transliterate books onto the screen. All right, and by that I mean you do exactly what's in the book on the screen because it's too long. If you want to read something for twenty pages, you can get engrossed in it. That's the beauty of reading a book is you can get lost in stuff. When I'm watching a movie, I want to see something going on. I want to see movement, and I don't, I don't, I hate this in movies where they tell you all this stuff and they don't show you any of it. You know, mm-hmm. they had to constantly keep telling us that these guys were starting to not like each other. You know, that there were starting to be these divisions before they ever showed it to me. I would have much rather them just showed it. I mean, I felt like there were almost four too many scenes of these three people getting ticked off at each other. Oh, yeah. And like I said, it's her M.O. for the books is like, especially starting with the third one, is like it'll go from Ron and Harry are mad at each other and Hermione's in the middle and Ron and Hermione are mad at each other and Harry's in the middle and Harry and Hermione are mad at each other. Ron is in the middle. I mean, it's just, it, and I guess that's what teenagers, teenagers do. So I don't remember doing that as a teenager, but I mean, I guess that's just what you kind of expect from them. It's the drama of being a teenager, right? Uh That's, that's part of the deal here. And I want to tell you, you know, the producers and the directors say they tried to cut out everything that didn't really affect Harry and his journey. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I can understand that to a point, but I felt like we almost spent too much time on the these three people and their journey together and how they had to kind of fracture and then get back together at the end. We put the band back together before the big concert, you know? Like, I felt like I was watching a badly malformed episode of Scooby-Doo, the way this was this was going down with these three people. Because that, while I, I think it's necessary to have that for a character arc and that it works, I didn't really, I didn't really dig it. I, like, I was sort of like, ticked off at all of them at one time or another i'm like all of y'all are being twerpy but they had to have it yeah but they had to have it for the plot because of the second challenge because he takes her they the mermaids take ron for harry hermione for victor and fleur's little sister and they've got that's the whole point of the challenge is they've got to save the people who are most they're taking the person who's most important to you and so and then that's when like Ron and Hermione make up or who know who was mad at each other. Ron and Harry make up. So yeah, make up because he saved his life and he yeah. realized that he's important. So it's, it's a plot point. They probably just didn't need to drum it into the ground like they did. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way of saying it. It was sort of drummed into the ground a little bit. So uh, what did you think of the, the ending of it though? When, you know, Peter Pettigrew, kills Cedric and then that allows him to bring forth Voldemort and then Voldemort and Harry duel. I I mean, we talked about how cool that was. I kind of thought it was neat. It gave Peter Pettigrew something to do besides scurry about on the ground and look ratty. (laughs) I mean, that, I mean, that guy looks like a rat anyway. No offense to Timothy Spall. Should you listen to this podcast, but you look like a big rat, sir. And Uh, on a (laughs) side note to that, what's freakier is that like, I've watched all these movies and you know, he's Winston Churchill in the King's speech. I did not realize that. Wow, you're right. That's him. He's the road manager in Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. That's how I know him. So that tells you what I think of his, uh, his ouvoir as an oh. actor. But, well, uh, I just, well, I, he was, I'm, I'm sitting there watching the movie. I'm like, why does he look so familiar? Why is he, and I'm like, oh, it's the rat from Harry Potter. Well, and I'm like, oh my looks, God, Winston Churchill. Well, he always looks half drunk. So, I mean, that's kind of part of his whole spiel. But I did like that, that that was how they killed, you know, Cedric. And that was how Voldemort was able to come forth. And then I, I, I thought the wand duel was sweet. I mean, that was good looking special effects. It was. And I, but, um, I mean, no matter what, you knew that's coming from the first movie. Well, yeah, but I didn't expect to see it in the middle of the series. You know, like I said, I, I didn't think you'd ever get the two big bads in the same room with each other until it was time to go. And I kind of like the fact that they decided to tease it. You know, we're going to get a little prelude mm-hmm. to the dance here. And, and I liked it. I thought it was cool. I mean, it was fun. And and like you've said, you know, we've spent all this time building up to something. This is the one vignette they hung around on for a minute. And I liked this. I, I would have much rather the last 30 minutes just been this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. I like the end, the end, the scene in the graveyard that it moved, the actors moved, the scene moved, the plot moved. And like I said, it's part of the best part of the whole movie. It's the bit, like I said, the last 30, 40 minutes are the best part of the whole movie. And I like the fact that Harry's wand forces Voldemort's to spit out all the people that he's you know, killed which are uh-huh. Harry's parents and Cedric. And that's how Harry's protected and basically escapes with Cedric's body using the cup as the portal again, and they bring uh-huh. his body back. I thought that was really neat. That was kind of cool. Uh-huh. 
the whole thing, it, it does in a weird kind of way come full circle with, you know, Harry's got a crush on Cho, who's Cedric's girlfriend. You know, he Cedric is the typical English, you know, proper English schoolboy, and Harry's kind of this misfit. So, and then Cedric's the one who dies. And Harry has to bring his body back. And that's going to mean Harry's got to live with this for the, you know, for the rest of his life, which is going to make a really bummer of a fifth year, uh, I would think. Yeah, you, you'd think that that might, you know, be a lingering bit. So, but you know what, Anna, we'll have to talk about that when we get around to talking about Harry's fifth year in Mm -hmm. the Order of the Phoenix. But before we do that, it's time for our recommendations and popcorn rating. What's your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? Well, I'm giving it like small popcorn because if you're going to watch the whole series, you've got to see it. And the other, other series are so good that, you know, I mean, some, linger a little bit and some have their moments where they're good and they're bad but the series as a whole is good and unfortunately this is an integral part there are characters that are going to come you are going to see in the last movie so that um, we've talked about we've talked about today and I mean you've got to you've got to see it for some of that stuff to make sense so, and unfortunately, what maybe I would suggest is maybe watch the first 30 minutes or the first 20, 30 minutes and fast forward and watch the last 30 to 40 minutes and you, you could pick it up without feeling, without constantly looking at your um, timer to see when this is going to be over. So I give it a small popcorn because you have to see it because it's part of a series and there are parts that are integral to it. You know, I, I feel like you do that there's, you know, where you need to see it if you're trying to watch this as a completist, and you probably would anyway, right? I mean, if uh-huh. you're into this, but just rating this by itself, this is small popcorn material all the way, by far the least engaging and least entertaining of this series so far. Even the second one that I thought got a little wonky from time to time, ah, this was just boring. And this is the Goblet of Boring. Is, is what it is. And I just don't have a lot of fun in this movie. There's nothing really fun here. Even the, the fun Trial Wizard tournament is broken up in a way that makes it not so fun. Like, if I could get an edited version of this that had maybe 10 minutes at the front that sort of sets up the plot, had the tournament, and then that end, I think I would be okay. But, uh-huh. you know, and I'm sure somewhere in the internet world that exists. And if you want to email that to me, you can at j at continuousplaypodcast.com. That would be awesome. Uh, but, of course, you know, legally, of course, you know, we'll work on the exchange rate later. But I, as far as this movie goes, small popcorn all the way. Just not, uh, it's just not fun. Now, you're probably going to have to suffer through it if you're watching the movie. And maybe some of you like it, you know, and that's fine. But I just didn't have a good time with this one. And therefore, I can't give it any more of a rating than that. It's two small popcorns for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. We won't be talking about Goblet of Fire hopefully much anymore, but next time we're back to talk about the Order of the Phoenix, so we'll see if they can pick it up from there. We do get a director change again, and it'll be the last one we get in this series. So, folks, until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning into our Harry Potter series here on Filmstrip from Continuous Play. 
thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com.